In an academic context, the word research means to systematically investigate something. This definition makes it easy to focus on the act of researching. The curiosity, the questioning, the learning of new things. But it doesn't really consider that research usually involves an output, some sort of publication that then becomes the property of the researcher and is protected by intellectual property rights. Researchers may be the ones to hold these rights, but they don't just generate this new knowledge on their own. Sure, they can credit those they learned from, but what about copyright or protection for those who held that knowledge in the first place? I'm Sid Clausen Rosewarn, and you're listening to the Canadian Mountain Podcast. This episode focuses on Indigenous intellectual property. This is part two about this topic. If you haven't listened to the first episode, I would recommend going back and listening. It covers definitions of intellectual property and traditional knowledge and explains how these systems often come into conflict because of their differing views around information and ownership. Before we get started, I'd like to take a moment to appreciate the land we work on and the people we work with. This podcast is produced across the ancestral Indigenous territories, now referred to as Treaty 7. The Canadian Mountain Podcast acknowledges the land where we work on as the home to the Nitsitipi, Iahe Nakoda, Sutna, and Métis peoples. As journalists and media makers involved in Indigenous knowledge mobilization, the collective responsibility of our podcast is to strengthen our relationship with Indigenous peoples through storytelling and partnerships. In this second episode, you'll continue to hear from Kyle Napier, a Dene Nihio Métis University instructor, specializing in Indigenous language revitalization and intellectual property, who is currently completing his PhD in educational policy at the University of Alberta. You'll also hear from Saad Iqbal, a research assistant who has just begun his PhD in human geography at the University of Alberta. In this conversation, we dive deeper into their current research project, which investigates Canada's intellectual property laws and how they do and don't protect Indigenous knowledge, also known as traditional knowledge. We first begin by discussing how Canada's current IP laws can impact the environment, particularly in the case of companies growing and harvesting Indigenous plants and foods that become popular in the media, like chaga a medicinal fungus that has been sustainably harvested by Indigenous communities, but is now seeing a rise in growth and harvesting across North America. Here's Kyle with his thoughts on this. It is a ongoing reason that our hearts beat in our communities is the transference of this knowledge. And, you know, noting that this is radio and not video, uh, Saad's agreeing, right, even just around the, 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 just the tense. And to even think, you know, this is where where people have framed this in past tense before i think that this needs to not just be viewed in present tense but also future tense because we in varying indigenous communities will continue um, for land defense and land advocacy and so when it comes to um, plant breeders rights or when it comes to land rights these human applications of ip um, around the land there are consistent misgivings there are also incredibly deeply steeped hierarchizing 
imbalances of intellectual property rights towards corporations over land. So let's say a corporation which develops a specific type of plant or they claim copyright over a specific type of plant. Well, if a seed of that plant goes over into a neighbor's field, such corporations have been known to sue. Um, and I feel in a way where, let's say, pollutants end up in riverway, riverways and, and waterways is that do corporations have enough power that they can say, oh, that river is full of my specific patented pollutant and therefore it's not a public riverway or waterway anymore um, because of the density of, let's say, such a pollutant in a waterway. This is an extreme example, but I would say it's, it's not so extreme in the example that we do have consistent land defense movements wherein pollutants and chemicals have more rights than waterways um, or, or than naturally occurring plants where, you know, to think of the example, Sid, where you're from in Calgary, where even though there were endangered plants and animals, um, the Sutina Ring Road still went through over those areas. And so when it comes to non-human IP, that is where there are extreme vulnerabilities um, in favor of corporations and industrial development. And so when it comes to the lack of protections for IP, putting the land at risk, it, it, as Saad is saying, there's the transgenerational knowledge sharing, which is based on land, but there are also protections of land which are contingent on land relations and, as a byproduct, ecological stewardship leading towards these type of land defense movements. This is why I, I was going to explain a little bit about how, how I've come to understand through my research is that why is it important for us to uh, develop programs, uh, especially in uh, post-secondary educational institutions where we talk about uh, some of these aspects. And one of the ways we could do this is to involve indigenous communities, indigenous peoples, especially indigenous elders, to teach about land, to teach about uh, indigenous um, land-based knowledge, not just to the indigenous communities, but also to non-indigenous people like myself, so that we could understand how living a harmonious relationship with the nature and the land and the environment could be. And it's not just something that we should be doing just out, just out of curiosity. It's just, it, it's just that based on the environmental impacts and the environmental crises that we have, you know, today uh, all over the world it's 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 a necessity it's a necessity for us to understand that you know indigenous communities have been able to avoid ecological collapses so they definitely have a lot to teach us they definitely have a lot to uh, to give to us and so it's it becomes a necessary a necessity uh, you know for our non-indigenous people also to not only understand indigenous intellectual property rights whether it's about media related entities or whether it's about intellectual property rights over the land over their land and natural resources this is something that we need to um, uh, we need to understand and we need to work to protect so that both indigenous and non-indigenous communities can take benefit against issues related to climate change how would more comprehensive protective legislation for indigenous ip prevent this type of exploitation from occurring in terms of like plants and, and medicinal herbs and things like that? 
Well, as Saad was talking about earlier, New Zealand has some of the strongest nation-level protections around uh, Indigenous intellectual property. And this is a direct result of collaboration with Māori in Aotearoa, colonially referred to as New Zealand. And with that type of comprehensive protective legislation, um, and this is owed to the Treaty of Watanga and to fierce fights of sovereignty from Māori, is that this has then led to cases wherein Māori communities or governments can advocate on behalf of peoples and knowledge holders in instances of um, appropriation and exploitation. Currently, within the Canadian framework, um, there are many, many examples happening right now of extraction and exploitation and appropriation. We see so we see dreamcatchers in the gas stations in Banff, uh, away from their Ojibwe lands, or we see pharmaceutical companies right profiting off of um, where they are sourcing aspirin, or we see you know, exploitations of language historically, right? So miners learning uh, the words for shiny rock in languages and asking where are the shiny rocks and trying to find if that's a mineral or an extractable resource. Um, so comprehensive and protective legislation around Indigenous IP can indeed prevent further exploitation from happening. As I'd mentioned earlier, though, a lot of the damage has been done. There are many times where we in Indigenous communities have, have historically buried knowledge to hide it from either colonial extraction or demonization, such as in the residential school days, where, you know, like in, in Nehoan or Cree, various plants like sweetgrass or sage were given the name like, oh, the devil's grass or the devil's whichever, um, to demonize it in the language so it wouldn't be exploited from um, priests or nuns that, that knew the language, or not even exploited, but also um, a means of preventing members of community from participating in their own ceremonial and spiritual practices. Same with sweat lodge ceremonies. Have those had gone underground since uh, the Indian Act of 1876 and a further amendment in the 90s which criminalized participation in ceremony. So if it's not extraction, it's criminalization. And uh, so I would argue that, yes, um, comprehensive protective legislation, not only from the Canadian government, but the Canadian government claims to maintain a nation-to-nation -nation relationship with all Indigenous nations. Now, we in Canada did not sign treaties with the, the government of Canada. We signed it with the Crown, which is effectively Britain. And we should not be subject to the vulnerabilities of Canada's IP laws. In fact, we as our own nations should have our, our own Indigenous intellectual property laws, which actually tr should trump Canada's if we're looking at the value of a treaty and who we sign treaty with. So I would say that not only should these protective legislations emerge from Canada, but they're like our little, little sibling um, in terms of Indigenous nations, which are spoiled and overpowered. <laughs> and so um, the power of Canada has gone far too far. And so I would say not only should Canada have its own IP legislation, 
WIPO should have its own, right, the World Intellectual Property Organization should have its own protective legislation, but also Indigenous nations. We have had our own protective protocols, but that is not the same as a written document, uh, which would be legislation. So I, I am an, a, a, I'm a strong advocate that Indigenous nations should have our own um, IP and protocol legislation. When it comes to how we think of each person's freedom, there's freedom from, in this case, freedom from Indigenous communities having, um, sorry, Indigenous communities having freedom from their cultures being appropriated or exploited. But there's also freedom to, such as Indigenous communities' freedom to engage with their ancestral cultural practices. How does adequate protection of Indigenous IP make it possible for Indigenous cultures to have that freedom to engage in um, sacred practices or ancestral ways of sharing knowledge? Well, Right now, there are so many plants that I can't talk about publicly, or there are so many words or stories which cannot be shared um, for risk of exploitation. And so you're right, right, freedom to, freedom to education, that's a promise in the treaty, right, is, is, is the right to education. Now, the type of education was determined, again, by Canada, which were residential schools, and so in that case, the right to education was one which contributed to very violent onto-epistemicide. And so freedom from exploitation, but freedom to access and engaging, like you said, in ancestral Indigenous um, knowledge and cultural practices. So, you know, if any of these plants, like I said, are, are written or put into curricula or anything like that, they become far more vulnerable. They become subject to copyright expiration. And so for these types of reasons, you know, I can't publicly engage about certain plants or even star relations, right? If we look at uh, cosmologies or health benefits, even even ways of relating with other animals, right? There are, there are a lot of things that I can't, I can't talk about um, in a public fora, particularly a digital public fora, as we're going to get to, it seems like, shortly. So an adequate protection of Indigenous IP, particularly from the nation and community level, and especially as bound through protocol, should allow for that engage, um, that, that freedom to, that freedom to learn um, and engage in these, uh, these sacred practices and, and means of sharing knowledge. So I'm thinking about, let's say, the sweat lodge ceremony in which uh, it had been banned, so there was not the freedom to participate nor the freedom from violence or exploitation, but that how that has changed. Now, I can't just go writing about sweat lodges and, um, and what goes on in them or various different ceremonies. So these are things which cannot be written about. And if they are, it renders them completely devoid of the actual happenings inside, inside these spaces. So... And, and I would argue it actually renders those space, um, like let's say if you have a, a video recording or someone's phone in a, in a ceremony, things like that, it actually nullifies the presence of spirituality in that. But we're not talk, just talking about ability to participate in ceremony, but we're also talking about educational um, areas. So, you know, there's an assumption that education is done within schools. Not all education um, takes place in schools. In fact, that's a very recent construct. And so these types of 
means of sharing knowledge. Typically, it's transgenerational, land-based, through language immersion and through cultural immersion and in the depths and the stark, stark depths of each of those words. So not just in a superficial conception, but, you know, as Saad had alluded to, many millennia of of giving meaning to each of those words or the way that we're interpreting those words today. As we start to talk about digital content management systems and um, management, digital management of ancestral heritages, we can think about tools like Mukutu or local context, or we can think about other licensing things like uh, assets like OCAP. Those ha- parameters of OCAP and principles of OCAP have made it easier for Indigenous communities to trust that what they're saying to researchers will not be exploited. It's it's a contract, it's a treaty, or it can be interpreted as one at the very least. And so in engagement with OCAP, there is a requirement that such knowledge is maintained by the community from which that knowledge comes from. And so it, if a researcher violates that treaty, of OCAP, then communities have grounds to, at the very least, not work with that researcher or school, and and they have evidence um, of violation, right? So when you have these avenues that make it easier to participate, then there are further avenues for um, community members then to engage with their own knowledge and trust that what they're sharing will not be, again, subject to vulnerabilities. When we talk about intellectual property rights, it also means that we have to understand the uniqueness of all indigenous nations, because there's not just one nation, right? There's there's many, there's multiple. So when you when you talk about having a, a an effective uh, indigenous intellectual property framework, it also means that each indigenous community or each indigenous nation should be allowed to have to develop their own. Uh, intellectual property and copyrights acts based on their own community standards or based on their own understanding of how they want or they would like their traditional knowledge or traditional cultural expressions to be protected against exploitation. So this also means that you cannot have like a, it's not like an exercise where you just make an uh, intellectual property and copyrights uh, safeguarding office that could speak for all indigenous communities or could speak for all indigenous nations. It also means that you need to have systems in place where each indigenous community and representatives from each indigenous nation are able to identify areas of protection and how they their uh, you know their traditional knowledge and expressions should be protected against uh, exploitation kind of in the beginning of our interview both of you mentioned parts of this but what does it look like for indigenous knowledges to exist in digital spaces you're listening to it it's happening right now we're live we're we're coming to you from your speaker your headset this is indigenous knowledges in 8D. And so, you know, whether it's broadcasting or media or the internet or satellites or our own ownership of uh, digital infrastructure and, and managing fiber optic lines, right, as that's done by Indigenous communities. So not only are we setting up digital infrastructure and content management systems, a la Makutu, um, but we are also participants. I mean, if you think about the first documentary ever made, right? Nanook of the North in the early 1900s, right? The, an early fascination on Indigenous communities. 
Um, you think about even there's Cree coding languages, right? Sorry, indigenous language coding languages. Like, you know, some people have heard of C plus and C plus plus. Well, there's Cree plus, okay? So, so when, when we as indigenous peoples and communities participate in digital spaces, I think there's a degree of sovereignty that comes with it. Um, and that's where we have uh, assets like Makutu as a CMS. You know, some of the, the earliest game designers uh, were, were, were native. Think about like John um, Romero, Think about my mom, right, in the early 1990s. Right? She was a game designer. I'm a digital game designer, right? There's tons of different ways that people, indigenous communities, participate in digital spaces. You can draw from Dr. Jennifer Wemiguan or Dr. Candice Gala for really great contemporary, critical, radical theorists in the space of uh, digital participation in online spaces. And and you get into deep theory, like Candice Gall is talking about, you know, the value of asynchronous to synchronous participation in, in, um, to dialogical to non-dialogical to interactive and non-interactive. The first indigenous-owned newspaper on this continent came out in the 1820s, and that was the Cherokee Phoenix, which was half in syllabics and half in English. And so, you know, whether it's a digital technology or a non-digital technology like trapping, we're using them, you know, we're using these, these technologies. And so it's kind of like what Audre Lorde said about using the master's tools to disassemble the master's house. Well, although we won't be able to use these tools to disassemble the master's house, we can use these tools in terms of our own sovereignty. I would say that we have a lot of fun in these spaces, uh, in digital spaces. There's a lot of great, like I said, video games. We make podcasts, we make movies. This is, we're not strangers to digital tech. And, uh, and, and we're, we're there just with you, you know, just with non-Indigenous communities with, with digital tech. You know, since the since the 1950s, the microprocessor in the 1958, well, ever since that, 1955, I think the microprocessor came out. Anyway, ever since the advent of the microprocessor, which took place on this continent in, or at least contemporarily, okay, Silicon Valley on Ohlone lands, well, that's, that's taking place on indigenous lands, but all of this is, is very recent continental history. So we're experiencing it at the same rate that you are. It's just now, now there's something else called the Matthew effect, which suggests that the types of folks who were there at the earliest points of access with the internet had the most ability to essentially colonize digital spaces and the internet, which is why things like Facebook, Instagram, um, social media, pages that, that are alive today are very um, anglophonically oriented. There is a lot of media made for and from the popular dominant culture, but how can digital technologies play a role in the survival of Indigenous cultures? Sovereignty. Yeah, I actually look to Nunavut as one of the strongest examples of Indigenous sovereignty of media and, and digital spaces. So in Nunavut, there are, there's very, very limited access to the internet. Um, it's some of the worst uh, internet access, some of the worst internet access in the world. And in Nunavut, there are, there's like NUTV, or there's Channel 51, or Isuma TV, which are Inuit-led media. And so there is less risk of Anglo-imperialism in Nunavut media because of the creation 
of Inuit-specific content in Nunavut for Inuit. So um, whether it's that, another Inuit, uh, our example from Inuit would be the creation of Never Alone, right, between Inupiaq and Alaska and, uh, and, and a specific game studio. And that is one of one game which is regarded as as very very supportive of indigenous culture and it's done in the language and it was done with really good participation between again that, that game design company and an Inupiaq of Alaska who participated in the development so there are ways that we can again retain sovereignty over the creations and also sovereignty over the management of digital heritage through content management systems. But when you see media and content and digital works created by uh, Indigenous communities for Indigenous communities, you start to notice different lenses and ways of thinking of the world. But you see these little like cultural cues and clues that are, are reminders against, again, that Anglo-imperialistic um, hegemonization. When it comes to protection of cultural elements, it does make a lot of sense what Kyle has just said, because, you know, there was a time growing up in Pakistan, there was a time when everyone would want to, you know, write text messages using Urdu, which is my national language. So we're using the, the Urdu, but we're using transliterated words. We're, we're using English alphabets. And like, that's how impactful media can be, because all the TV channels, everything, the cartoons, the, the movies and everything, it's just also western oriented that it, it takes a lot of time but then eventually it turns uh you know it turns you away from your culture or maybe you know distances you from your culture um you know the examples that kyle has given that those are just uh, certainly some really good examples of how you can you know uh keep the you know indigenous culture it could help indigenous communities to you know stay closer to their culture or or, or come closer to their culture my last question on this about the digital media kind of side of things is that it's my understanding that an important part of sharing knowledge in many indigenous cultures is the connection to the land, which I, I kind of think we um, discussed a little bit earlier as well. Um, how might using digital media as a means for storytelling or sharing knowledge impact the physical, spiritual, or emotional meaning of stories and knowledge systems? Yeah, here, here I'd recommend you look to the work of Gregory Coyes, who founded uh, the concept of slow media. Gregory Coyes is, is, um, is native. He's living in BC, by the way, and I think he works as a media instructor um, teaching videography. And so in slow media, let's say a shot, which would have been three seconds before, now would be in the length of maybe 15 minutes or, you know, just one single shot of, of plants billowing in the wind. And again, it comes down to an exercise in patience. But your question focuses on the physical, spiritual, and emotional meanings of stories and knowledge systems and how that can be facilitated through digital media. And I would say there comes a point when someone needs to go outside <laughs> if they truly want to experience the land, it's not the digital relation to the land that will necessarily be the conduit. Now, bearing in mind there are accessibility reasons why someone may prefer to use uh, digital access to land and, let's say, participate in virtual reality spaces or learn their language through an app or, you know, if they don't have access to a fluent speaker and that's the only means to begin for them to begin learning the language, well, that could be one way. Um, but I would say to really get to the physical, spiritual, and emotional meanings of these storage, stories and knowledge systems, um, there's a 
you need to be out there. You need to be out on the land. And digital spaces cannot convey for you the importance of a relationship with fish when you're hungry and, and stuck on an island. Um, or it cannot share with you the power of ceremony when you have been starving for not like starving but when you have been fasting for four days there's a degree that digital media can be there as an introduction but again even to think about where digital media comes from digital media comes from the land right these are extracted technologies and minerals which are made up which make up the phone um, that I'm using to join now or computer or, or a radio which people may be using to, to, to listen to this or you know, phone through their apps or whichever. And so the very technologies that we're using are from the land. Um, and people tend to forget that. And in various indigenous belief systems, we're actually related to these digital technologies, right? So again, in Cree, how you would be related to grandfather rock while we're related to the minerals um, used to facilitate this, this conversation now. So I think that that's often forgotten. And yeah, so, so digital media can function as a degree of interest um, to connect people to their, their physical, spiritual, and emotional um, stories and knowledge systems. But, I mean, some of these stories took a season to tell, four months to tell. That's multiple seasons, right? We have six seasons in a Cree belief system. And so you know, that overlaps several seasons. And so... I don't know of a digital technology that can allow for um, a four-month-long story, let alone the protocol or the level of attention needed to be both the storyteller and the listener. That's not something that you can just put on as a podcast because then you have these other instances of interruption. So although I <laughs> am advocating for some uses of digital technologies, uh, it's certainly does not uh, allow for the depth in this type of transgenerational knowledge sharing required for emotional, physical, uh, and spiritual regaling. Is there anything else that you'd like to share? I was thinking about, you know, how, how can non-Indigenous people, you know, not help, but ensure that Indigenous intellectual property rights are effectively uh, respected or uh, being followed, right? So uh, the Intellectual Property Office of New Zealand, again, uh, that we, Kailan, have talked a lot about, um, they suggest that, you know, for people with diverse cultural backgrounds, as, such as myself, we, uh, it is important for us to not borrow traditional knowledge uh, or culture without pro proper effective permission or protocol, right? Now, I agree with that, and I recognize the importance, but uh, based on my experiences as an international student who comes from Pakistan, uh, who's been here for a year and a half, um, I also feel like there is a lot that we need to do. To, I mean, in order to do so, we, there's a lot we need to do in terms of policy and practice. And one of the ways that I think we need to do uh, this is through, um, you know, th there's definitely more work needed to, you know, sort of work on awareness. As an international student or as someone with a different, very diverse or a different cultural background, how would I uh, be able to understand the importance of indigenous intellectual property uh, when I don't even know the difference between an indigenous intellectual property or, or just intellectual property in general, right? So for me, in order for me to do this was to, to be able to be involved in, in, in research like this. And I, I feel really 
uh, privilege to be a part of this uh, this kind of a research. But then not all my international friends or not all people who are coming from different cultural backgrounds might be able to have those opportunities, right? So one way we could do this is to have educational policies, you know, within the universities, within the post-secondary educational institutions, where people come from different cult uh, cultures, different countries, different ethnicities, and actually majority of the programs do not talk about these issues. They do not talk about uh, how important it is to have indigenous intellectual property, uh, you know, frameworks in place, right? One way uh, I see indigenous intellectual property uh, frameworks being more effectively implemented is for non-indigenous people like myself to understand first how important it is, why it is important, and how it is unique and different from, let's say, the Western intellectual property frameworks that we already have in place. I mean, there's so much for us to, that that Saad and I and, and yourself, Sid, could continue talking about, and it really could be the source of its own podcast. And I know that the next few questions you had written were solutions-oriented. What can we do about this, right? We realize it's an issue. What can be done about this? And uh, and that's where I'm going to bring it back to looking to global precedents like New Zealand, as Saad has cited, the Intellectual Property Office of New Zealand, or Indigenous Nation-led IP initiatives or digital infrastructure initiatives, or solutions can come down to large sweeping changes regarding rematriation and reattribution. And I call upon news organizations to implement OCAP within their participatory news practices or within not just news organizations, let's say research in universities, right, where OCAP should become a, a, a standard, a de facto standard within work with Indigenous communities, whether it's research or media related. So these changes need to happen. WIPO is initiating changes and they're meeting in July to address ind Indigenous intellectual property and uh, and plant life on a global scale. So I'm really interested to see what happens from that. Uh, Canada has put forward funding. They put money on the table for Indigenous nations and communities to develop their own initiatives. So I'm really quite interested to see what emerges from that. And I encourage anyone who's listening, likely there are researchers listening, see what OCAP could mean for you and your community. You could also participate in rematriation and reattribution such that any recordings that you take of knowledge keepers or photos that you take of knowledge keepers, um, that you could actually rewrite the copyright so that the copyright belongs to the person that you're either recording or that you took a photo of, which, uh, which again, could be interpreted and adopted by um, news organizations and agencies. So there's, there's a lot that can be done. It's an abstract field in that... Although there are, as you'd mentioned, Sid, protections for corporations uh, and individuals, that Indigenous IP, it goes far beyond um, legislation and much deeper into spiritual consequences and, you know, life and death consequences, right? If it's the wrong medicine or the, or the wrong design of a boat or, um, you know, there, there can be, there can be, the consequences can be much more more felt and ultimately again with the exploitations of vulnerabilities is that if these knowledges are continually profited on and they're removed from the source of of where they come from whether it's the land or communities is that they'll essentially lose their their medicinal properties and their values over time they'll, they'll lose their spiritual spiritually healing aspects um, that come with them so I would say, you know, there are so many different ways that Indigenous knowledges have been exploited. And again, Gregory Younging is a great resource to look there. And right now we live at the crux of change for IP. And so keep your fingers on the pulse. There's change happening. 
that was Kyle Napier and Saad Iqbal, both researchers and doctoral students at the University of Alberta, discussing their research on how Canadian intellectual property laws can better serve traditional knowledge holders. During our conversation, Kyle and Saad shared some meaningful discoveries. For one, because Indigenous intellectual property is not protected, medicinal plants that have been used and stewarded intergenerationally for centuries through Indigenous healing knowledge systems are at risk of exploitation by pharmaceutical companies, which are over-exploiting the use of Indigenous medicinal plants, putting plants and environments at risk, and the lack of reciprocity to the land has physical and spiritual consequences. New Zealand has set an example for the Indigenous nation-led IP initiatives and digital infrastructure solutions from change with remediation and reattribution. In Canada, Kyle calls for news organizations and higher education institutions to implement OCAP, an information governance tool for First Nations data sovereignty, which stands for ownership, control, access, and possession as the standard. That's it for this edition of the Canadian Mountain Podcast in partnership with the Community Podcast Initiative at Mount Royal University. Thanks for listening. I'm Sid clausen Rosewarn, host and producer of this episode. And thank you to Kyle Napier and Meg Wilcox for guidance. The Canadian Mountain Podcast is produced from Treaty 7 with the goal of bringing together Indigenous knowledges with settler research and sciences through this shared platform. We are committed to collaborating with Indigenous peoples in respect of the contributions of Indigenous voices and knowledge holders. We are actively learning to decolonize our production practices through this series and encourage other media professionals and organizations to decolonize their practices as well. Be sure to join us again for more stories surrounding mountain places, whether that be in your own backyard or from around the country. Share and subscribe to get the latest updates and be sure to tell your mountain-loving friends and colleagues. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts and you can learn more about the Canadian Mountain Network at canadianmountainnetwork.ca.